Now, it'd be good if you could turn back to the passage which Jonathan read so well for us and to us and with us, and we're going to look together, as you can see from the, you can see from the screen now, from Luke chapter 1 and verse 67 to verse 80, which is the final section of Luke chapter 1, and is known as the Benedictus, and I'll explain why in a moment, if you don't know. Maybe if you are familiar with this chapter of Luke at all, you'll, you'll know, and often the more popular, more common place to dive in is the Magnificat, Mary's song found from verse 46 onwards. That's the passage which often people and Christians, and even those who are not Christians know because they perhaps recited it or sung it at their school, or if they uh, are used to being in the Church of England context or a Catholic context, would know the words to the Magnificat. And poor old um, Zechariah's um, prophecy, his praise, his song at the end of this chapter is one which gets missed out for some reason, because it contains a wonderful picture of what Christmas is all about. So much of what's important about the time of year, not this particular time of year, but the time which we remember God's inbreaking in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Zechariah's song, you'll see if you've got the NIV, which was certainly the version we were reading, you'll see is headed there, Zechariah's song, Zechariah the father of John the Baptist, so a family connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he was subject to some amazing events as uh, if we were to flip back uh, earlier on into the chapter when he meets with an angel. And if indeed we just read from verse 57 onwards, you'll see some of the extraordinary events that were going on before this, this song. Let's read that, shall we, together. Verse 57 and following. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. I'm not quite sure what those signs would have been. But uh, nonetheless, interesting, how do you ask a father who can't speak what he wants his son to be called? He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak praising God. The neighbours were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, when, then, is this child going to be? Or what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Then Zechariah uh, breaks out into this song, inspired, as we can read there, by the Holy Spirit. But what do we make of this song? Well, It might not be particularly obvious from the passage that's laid out in the NIV, but there are four key sections. We're going to look at those sections uh, in turn uh, as we work through this passage and and discover something again, afresh maybe, of the wonderful inbreaking of God into our world. The first point from verses 68 and 69 are these, the coming of God's Messiah. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. The Old Testament, one of the great Old Testament themes that the, the hearers, the first hearers of this song would have known was that God was a God who was, was intimately involved in redeeming and rescuing his people. A major theme that God was not remote and distant. Um, there was, of course, many years ago, this great picture that God would wind up the world and would leave it and let it run. It was beautifully orchestrated and organized and structured, but God had no involvement in it. Or with it. But that's not the picture the Old Testament church had of God. He was one who came 
and rescued and redeemed. The significant, one of the most significant events in the history of the Old Testament church, of course, was that of the Exodus from Egypt, when God comes in himself. We can read it in Exodus chapter 12, an amazing thing, where God himself comes in and acts in great dramatic power, both in death and in rescue, to redeem his people. That's how he is. That's what they understood God was like. That's the way he worked and operated. And of course, the Old Testament church would have continued to celebrate and remember that event every year as they celebrated the Passover. Of course, the other end of of the earthly life of Christ was the Passover was again very significant in that point of his life. Passover, that last supper, when they again, as a church, as an Old Testament people, were celebrating, remembering what God did in redemption. Of course, powerfully significant in terms of what was happening to Christ at that time. And every year, the Old Testament church would remember and celebrate the Passover. There is in the Old Testament a lovely picture of the of subsequent generations who were not in Egypt being told that they were actually present in the events of the first Passover because so important was it in their life and their theological, their spiritual story that although they were not physically there, they were there as a part of God's people being rescued by God in the events in Egypt. Other parts of the Old Testament, of course, focus upon the coming of the Messiah into the world, the promised sent one, the son of David who would come and would rescue. There would be an extraordinary intervention of God on behalf of his people in the sending of a second David, a greater David. Jewish people again, knowing that God was a God who intervened in the events of Egypt and in the Passover, were again looking for this Messiah, this sent one. Their spiritual story, their spiritual life was built upon this theological fact that God intervened and rescued and saved. Now, of course, the Old Testament church may well have been expecting a Messiah who would come in military power or political power and transform their situation. That's what they understood. Not to come as a baby born in a stable. This is not a picture they had in their minds. But nonetheless, Zechariah here repeats the theological understanding, the spiritual knowledge of the church then, that God intervenes. He says, he has come and he has raised up, he has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. The horn, of course, is a picture of the horn of a bull or a strong animal because it's, it is the rescue by a baby, but also it is a powerful and effective and complete salvation. Now maybe for us as Christians in our world, that is not a theological narrative to our lives. We are not a people who think about necessarily all the time God being a God who intervenes. Perhaps for us it's not quite the same as the Old Testament church. But we should try and recapture something of that, that we belong to a God who rescues, who redeems, who saves us who intervenes in our lives. If we lose that, we lose the wonder of Christmas, we lose the wonder of our salvation, I think. That we, helpless and stuck and trapped in our sin, have been rescued because God has reached down himself and saved us. I don't know if any of you have had the misfortune or the drama of being rescued by an air-sea helicopter or a mountain rescue helicopter. I haven't. This is not a story I was going to talk about or against myself. But maybe if that's an experience you have had, you would recall that story with great passion and excitement. And maybe if your husband or wife said, don't, don't mention it again, you know, I know it was, you were there, 
in the sea or on the mountainside or, up, or up, stuck up the top of Snowdon and, the, and, you, and we've heard it and we've heard it and we've heard it because somebody who had been rescued, it would be a great significance to you. And you would recall the story of how you were bravely going about some task and were swept off your feet and rescued by this nice man on a winch and a helicopter or whatever. Unless, of course, you were rescued by the Norfolk Mountain Rescue Team where you might be slightly more embarrassed. Thank you, Simon. I'm glad somebody got the... Uh, try and stay with the jokes. But that sense of being rescued is something that would stay with you if it had been a human experience, a natural experience, stuck on a family holiday and rescued in an amazing way. You recall that story. And for us as Christians, I think we need to recapture that sense of wonder that God has come just in the same way. That's a picture of God's rescue of us in our lives, of not coming in a helicopter, but coming in the person of his Son to rescue and redeem us. So the coming of God's Messiah, verses 68 and 69. And then the deliverance of God's people. You can see this in verse 71 to 75. God keeps his promises. We know that's true and we know that God's word tells us that again and again and again. His word is clear to us. God is a God who keeps his promises. You'll see reference there made in verse 73 to a promise that was made to Abraham. That promise was made approximately 2,000 years before Zechariah's song. 2,000 years previous, God had promised that he would come and rescue and redeem his people. He would make a way for them to be properly restored to himself. And now, 2,000 years later, he was going to rescue. Maybe 2,000, well, 2,000 years is a long time, isn't it? And particularly in our own culture and society where everything has to be now. When When is God going to work? Why is he not working in my life now? We want things straight away, don't we? I wasn't remotely frustrated by Simon's inability to get this machine to work, but I was yesterday when we were trying to, to buy a present, <coughs> a late present for one of our children online, and the internet was so desperately slow. Now, it wasn't really that, compared to five years ago, it was fantastically fast, but now it is so, the little green thing, and I've just signed up to Sky Broadband, it's meant to be so quick, and just chugging along there, waiting for the next one. Did you mean to buy this? Yes. Can I have your credit card? Yes. It was actually very quick. But for us, we think, quick, 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 go, go, go. Everything's got to be now. 2,000 years ago, I just bought a new motorbike. And the first question everybody asks when they speak to me about it is, how fast does it go? That's the question everybody wants to know. How quick is your new motorbike? Well, if you see my, as you might see my wife, I'm not going to tell you how quick uh, the motorbike will actually go. It's a bit faster than my previous one, but that's as far as I'm going to give away tonight. People want to know things now and have it now, but God's word here says that 2,000 years after he promised, God fulfilled that promise in an amazing and wonderful way. Abraham, of course, would have no idea how this promise would have been fulfilled in the coming of Christ. The Jews, maybe, as I said, were looking for a political or a military solution. Where is the great warrior king who's going to come and rescue us from these terrible Romans? But God's work here is not primarily military or political. It is a spiritual work. You'll see there at the end of verse 74, his his work is to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to do what? To enable us to serve him without fear 
And then verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. This work, this fulfilled promise, this intervention of God is not about political or military power, it's about rescuing a people in salvation and allowing them to have a relationship with God, a relationship which had been broken by sin. You'll see there is a spiritual uh, consequence to what God does and, 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 a, and a significance to it. God's rescue for us will enable us to serve him, but will enable us to serve him without fear and in holiness and righteousness. I did wonder what the difference is between holiness and righteousness. Never thought about it before until I came to this passage. One of the commentators says this, it's probably, it might be, if there is a distinction, it's this, that the holiness refers to our relationship that is restored in and with God, and righteousness is about our restored relationships with one another. Whether you support that or not, I don't know. It's an interesting picture, but it does give the full encompassment, if you like, of what this salvation is about. It's about restoring our relationship to God and restoring our relationship to one another. And so for us, even, there are consequences to God's work in this way in salvation. There are real, practical, tangible, concrete consequences to this intervention of God in our lives. We will be able to serve him without fear, which I guess is true for all of us here in this country, and to live as well in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. There is a reordering of our lives as a consequence of Christ coming into this world. But in preparing this passage, in the days I was preparing for, I was also reading the latest magazine from the Barnabas Trust, and it struck me as well that there, are, there is great sections of our church in the world today which cannot say this just yet, to enable us to serve him without fear. Uh, we have had at Bethesda, over a number of years, uh, visits from uh, a church in, or a college in London, which is a college training Iranian Christians. Maybe you've come across Elam Ministries yourself here. If you want to hear the most extraordinary testimonies, invite Elam to come and share a morning service with you. When they first came to us, a number of young people, by young I mean in their early 20s, who were at the college, when they stood up to give their testimony, said this, that we are training to go back to Iran and most of us are expecting to die as a consequence of being Christian leaders in the church. That is not a world, is it, that we engage with very often. We had another visit last year, uh, no, this year from them. Two, two people came to us to share in our Sunday service and one of them, a girl who uh, uh, lives in Tehran or churches at Tehran, she was here learning and studying God's word to go back and to be a leader in the life of the church there. She said this, when we see a visitor in the church, we are petrified because that leader, that uh, visitor, is probably from the secret police. We think, oh, great, visitors, lovely, make them welcome. They look around and think, mm, who's that? What's that going to mean for us? There are still parts of the church for whom this prophecy is still to come true, and we should pray for those who suffer in this way. The third point is from verses 76 and 77, just two verses, the preparation of God's people. You see here that Zechariah switches now from the message about what God is doing and the change that it's going to make, and he switches into this picture of his own son, the work of his son in preparing the way for God's people, to prepare the way for the Messiah. 
to tell the people about the coming salvation. You can see that. And you, my child, imagine this, a father prophesying, saying these things about his own child that has just, uh, just been born. Amazing activities going on here. His son, John the Baptist, would be somebody who would not be able to save people. Indeed, none of us can who are preachers or pastors or evangelists or any of us can do that. That is the work of God alone. But John the Baptist would be used to call people to repentance and to tell them about a man who could save them. It's interesting that if you read a bit about John the Baptist, you get the impression that even perhaps as a youngster, he was not the kind of child that spent time on the PlayStation or on MSN with his mates. Somehow there is something different about John the Baptist. Verse 80, verse 80 tells us that the child grew up and became strong in spirit, lived in the desert until he appeared publicly for his ministry. Some feel he might have grown up in some kind of a, a, a cave-dwelling situation or some kind, not, an, a sect, not a sect in a bad way, but a Jewish, a committed and dedicated Jewish group that trained him in the ways of Old Testament scripture and so on. You get the impression John the Baptist was a different man, an unusual man even. Of course, if we um, were to drop on to the beginning of John, uh, sorry, to go back to the beginning of Mark chapter 1, we see there about the, his, what he ate and the clothes he wore and so on. Here was a different man, but a man upon whom God had placed his hand and would use him in a special way of preparation. Notice as well here, would you, in uh, verse 77, that there is a very interesting word that I had never spotted before. John's work is this, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. His work is not to go to another people, or to a people, or to the Gentiles. He is to bring this message to God's people, to tell them about salvation. Was it that his people, the church here at this time, the Jewish nation were not aware of how God would work, had lost sight of what God would do. John himself tells us, of course, in the beginning of John's Gospel, that Jesus came to his own, yet his own did not receive him. An interesting work of the prophet here to come to his own people to tell them about the work of God. Now, John the Baptist, of course, is a unique individual and his role was unique because nobody can do the same role again or ever again in the same way. And I was wondering about how do we bring some application to this without doing violence to this passage? Because we can't be John the Baptist. God has not placed his hand upon us in the same way he did upon John the Baptist. Historically, we can't be in that point either. But I think there is a role to be played here, which is this role for all of us, which is to be preparing the way for the gospel, to tell people of God's salvation, of his work in Christ, of the experience that we can have of forgiveness and cleansing and transformation. People do not become Christians by osmosis or by magic. God's way is through the sharing of, of the evangelizing, the sharing of his word, the bringing of people to repentance. And that work, that role is still important. It's a role for all of us to play, that we are still used to introduce others to Christ and be ready and prepared for that and for those moments. A few weeks ago I was coming back uh, from London, as I'm often in London these days, coming back from London on the train. I was coming back with my boss, manager. I, I am not a director of the company, but uh, I do work directly for the MD, which has its challenges. And uh, we'd both been at our 
HQ in London at Oldgate, just a short walk from Liverpool Street, and we happened to be both finished our meetings at the same time and walking back to the station to Liverpool Street at the same time. Now, for some reason in our company, the directors get to travel first class and the rest of us travel cattle class. Quite why that should be, I have no idea. But uh, on the way back, I was talking to my boss and he said, I suppose you want me to pay for an upgrade for you. I said, well, I think anything else would be quite, quite disappointing. So he paid for me to be... Uh, he paid for me to go to travel. I had to tell him off because he, he, as soon as he got on, he put his phone on. That we were in the quiet carriage in the first class, and it was a quiet carriage as well. And I pointed to the thing behind him. Oh, yeah, right. But anyway, it was one of these first class carriages. There was hardly anybody in it. Well, there were some people in it, but they were all scattered around, all quietly, in the quiet carriage. And uh, all of a sudden, he said, quite out of the blue, as we, before we'd even pulled out the station, he said to me, so how did you become a Christian then? in full hearing of everybody. So I think, right, I've got a left-right moment here. Do I take this opportunity? Do I spurn it? So I took it. And we spent the rest of the trip home, thankfully not talking about work, but talking about spiritual things. How did I become a Christian? Why was I doing town pastors? Why, what was my ministry in the church? How, did, how much do ministers get paid? How do we pay ministers? How can we afford it? And all these kind of Being a businessman, you see, he's working out. And he said, you know, we're talking about all sorts of interesting things, but an opportunity, and we have those opportunities, don't we, all the time. Preparing the way for Christ. And the fourth and final point, you'll see in verses 78 and 79, the passion of God's heart. You read this in English and you think, well, that's quite interesting, because of the tender mercy of our God. Yes, well, we know that. But actually, the word in Greek is a brilliant word. It's a fantastic word. It's a word, which means, I'm not going to say that again, which means, um, spelt in English, it's S-P-L-A-G-C-H-N-A. There, you can say it yourself if you can. I guess the Greeks were able to say it with great feeling and passion, as they should, because it was a word which described the heart, the lungs, the liver, quite why those three organs, I don't know, but those organs, and they were seen to be the controlling emotions in a human being. The, this was the heart of somebody. This was the place of passion, the place where somebody expressed their real selves. So what Zechariah is singing here is this. He's saying that God is not remote control. He's not disinterested in us. This event of sending Christ into the world is not something where God thought, oh dear, Poor old people, I'll just sort something out for them. This was something that came from God's heart, from his controlling emotions. Something of his passion, something of his real self here is, is going on here. Because of, because of God's passion, we could almost read this, because of the real heart of God, he has done something for us in Christ. There is a consequence to God's passion being outpoured upon us. You can see it here in, in verse 78. The rising, there's a pitch here of the rising sun, the sun dispelling darkness in the lives of those who meet this passionate God who makes himself known to us in Christ. One of my roles is to bring forth the next gen work, is to bring forth the next generation of trainees at work. And every year I take on three or four trainees and I, it's my, I have five years to get them from being raw trainees to being useful to the business. And usually I succeed in that task with lots of help. My young trainees come to me usually as A-level 
students finished A-levels, and I say this carefully in case there are any A-level students here, I'm not sure if there are, but uh, they, they discover a new world of work. And they go from enjoying sitting in the common room, uh, drinking coffee, to being on site. On site, this is, at half past seven, and staying there till five o'clock. So they have to drive to the site, and which might mean getting up at six o'clock, and they drive to site in time for half past seven to be on site all day, working all day flat out till five o'clock when they can come home again. Now, you could report me to some social organisation, I guess, but uh, they all enjoy it, really. And about October, November time is a time when that becomes really, really hard for them because, for this reason, they are suddenly find themselves getting up in the dark, poor little lambs, and coming home in the dark. Their world to them seems to be a suddenly grown-up world of darkness. But yet when they get round to April and May, suddenly it's a different scene because they suddenly start to wake up in sunshine, in daylight, and they get home in daylight. And it's a suddenly a much easier world. The light has suddenly spread abroad in their lives and they suddenly find that actually they can do this job after all and they will make it in the end. There is a picture here which we understand, don't we, of, of what it is to get up in the dark and go to bed in the dark and feel that sense of winter foreboding. Maybe you have that. And Zechariah here says this, as a consequence of God's work, the light, the sunshine, has shone upon those who are living in the dark. It's a picture we can understand. It's sometimes hard to explain to somebody, what is it like to become a Christian? What difference does it make in a person's life? Well, it's like, it is like the sun shining in darkness. Christmas Day is the day. We know it probably wasn't December 25th, but Christmas, the day of Christ's birth is the day when God shone his light in a wonderful way into our lives. Now I hope that that is your experience, if you're a Christian here tonight, that your experience is this, that your experience of Christian life is not just, if I can use that word, being rescued. We thought of the helicopter coming in and rescuing us. It's not just being rescued, but it's also having our lives changed and transformed, of having that sense of joy and hope and spiritual sunshine that shines in our lives. Yes, God has rescued me, but he's rescued me to give me a new life and a new joy and a life of sunshine, not a, not a trivial, I don't mean that in a kind of all my life is all sunshine, but that God has shone his light into my life and transformed my situation. So this is Zechariah's song, the Benedictus. Hopefully you'll see that in this passage, which maybe you just read through or have ignored even before when you read through this, the Christmas narratives, that here in this passage, we see much of the nature of God and of his work and of his salvation and of our, or his work in salvation and our experience of that salvation. It's a story here, a song, which gives us the big grown-up picture of what God is doing in the Christmas events. God's promises coming together. God's work in our lives. God's sunshine being spread abroad in our lives. Lives which can then, in turn, respond in holiness and in righteousness, and in joy. I trust that will be our experience during these days of this Christmas season. Let's join together in prayer, shall we? Let's pray together. Our Father, we can easily find ourselves, perhaps sometimes even for good reason, with wanting to be a part of a family, celebrations of being generous and kind people, of wanting to do things well. We can find ourselves with 
the real core of the Christmas story being pushed out to the margins of our lives and losing the sense of joy and wonder and amazement at what you have done in our lives. Heavenly Father, we ask please as we have visited this passage in a little detail that you will help us to to sing for ourselves the song which Zechariah sang on that first Christmas time. That we'll sing the song of, of a God who loves us, of a God who redeems us, of a God who reaches in and rescues us, of a God who gives us new life, a God who spreads abroad light in our lives, a God who changes our lives and gives us that sense of holiness and righteousness and wanting to live in a different way. Lord, we ask please that Zechariah's song would be our song and that we would have this renewed wonder of what you have done for us in Christ during this season. Lord, speak to us and Let these words continue to feed our lives during the days of this week as well, we pray, because we ask it, please.